Open Sci-Fi, Episode 11. This is the beginning of Season 2 by Star Llamas. Hello and welcome to the second season of Open Sci-Fi. Now, for those of you that aren't quite sure, the season's just sort of the book we're playing that way. If you want to uh, start listening somewhere from the beginning, you just can start from the beginning of the season, no matter the season. Or pretty much the book, I suppose I could say book two. Anyway, I'm sorry for forcing you to listen to the whole song. Uh, next time, I'd probably interrupt somewhere in the song. Just because, I mean, who wants to listen to a minute of random nothingness? I just wanted to let you hear the whole song. Actually, I may play the whole song once in the next episode. However, after that, I'll probably interrupt it and go straight into the show, unless I hear otherwise. Now, I'm really, really sorry, but I uh, had a co-host, and we originally had to record it on his old iMac, and finally we got it to work. Unfortunately, I found out that Audacity 1.0 files are not compatible with Audacity 1.3.3 files. So therefore, I can't get to it in, except for on his iMac, and no, I'm sorry, but I just recorded it. I'm not going to go anywhere near editing for it. So unless something happens, you won't get to play it. You won't be able to hear it. Let's see, next is the... Uh, I actually got a new microphone, the Samsung CO3U microphone. I'm going to play the review for you now. Hello, fellow LibriVoxians and other people that happen to be listening to this review. This is Mr. Pie or TBOL3, reviewing my all-new, bought for $53, including shipping, new not used, new, CO3U, Samson Condenser USB Mic. The C stands for condenser. I have no idea what the O stands for. The 3 means it's the third edition. Uh, actually, it's the second USB edition microphone. Um, but it's their third condenser microphone, and they based this off their third one the CO3 and made it the CO3 U U standing for USB uh, this microphone has three modes to it uh, pickup ranges if you will let me switch to the first one I'm going to be reviewing here you go 
this is the ortho pickup range. It's the pickup range is sort of pick up everything in a circle. You probably can now hear my computer a lot more and me less because my computer is evil and is liking to make lots of annoying noises. Um, anyway, I was having trouble getting it to run on Linux. It was kind of pathetic of me because I plugged it in and I realized in Audacity I have to switch it to preferences. And in the preferences menu to also Samsung CO3U USB microphone. Took me a while to figure that out. And then, sadly enough, it took me too far too long to realize to turn the microphone up. Anyway, on to the next pickup range. This is the standard pickup range. It's what I recorded the beginning of this review in. This is a pickup range just in front of you. It's also called Cartho, Cardo, something like that. It just sort of picks up what's in front of the mic and not what's around the mic. Um, in this view, I'm going to be talking about the um, software that comes with the Samson mic. It is Cakewalks. Um, let me get it, I forgot the name. Oh yes, Cakewalks Sonar LE. It's a nice piece of software, actually, even though it only runs on Windows and uh, possibly Mac. Actually, yes, I'm almost positive it runs on Mac. Um, even though it's the light edition, it is still pretty good. I mean, really, I've seen programs that do as much as the light edition does, up to $50, so... You know, I suppose you could look at it this way. I bought a copy of Cakewalk and got a free microphone. Anyway, on to the next pickup range. This is the figure 8 pickup range, or bi-directional pickup range, depending on what you wish to call it. It's like the standard pickup range, except it does the same thing for the front and the back. It's kind of good for interviewing two people in this pickup range I was well, I can't remember what I was gonna talk to you about so I'll just switch back to standard um there's some other neat features this mic has for example if you can hear me now I'll be really amazed. Actually, you probably can because I'm yelling. This feature takes it down 10 decibels. That's what I'd use for it, since I don't plan on playing instruments for it. And while I'm at it, I just remember what I was going to talk about. I, I, I haven't set up a studio for this. Um, I'm just sort of talking into the mic. No happy thingies to make the sound waves bounce around and into the mic. Um, actually, to help prevent plosives, like that, I actually have the microphone right under my chin, that way you won't hear the puzz. Um, next, we have the, uh, this. I don't know if there's any change whatsoever, but all it does is uh, apparently supposed to take out the lower level ranges. So, say you're recording your guitar on this microphone and your drums on another one, it's supposed to take out those drums that sneak in, although I'd probably never use it. Let's go back. Uh, so, we're back here in regular mode. Uh, those are the five functionalities the mic has. Apparently, there's also supposed to be extra drivers or an application that's supposed to make the gain go up and down and other happy things that pretty much audacity will do for me so i have no need for it it's a overall very good mic although i have some complaints it, it comes with a little tripod you know oh like three inches long but once you take it out it's a half an inch tall and a good few inches wide Anyway, it also then it connects to a shock mount type thing, 
which connects then to the microphone and then it has a hole so you can plug the USB into the computer. Anyway, so you you take off the bottom of the mic, unscrew it, uh, put the chalk mount in, screw the bottom of the mic back in, makes sense, right? Perfect. Um, but then you get to the tripod. That's kind of weird. Um, you see, the, um, yeah, it, it, the tripod has a really wide screw, and the shock mount has a really skinny screw. And for some reason, the, they have the same screw, but apparently the shock mount has the American screw with a little metal thing, which you can take a screwdriver to get out. That It's pretty much a converter to a European stand, whereas the shock mount's just American, so you have to to use it, take out the European screw, which would make much more sense just to have it in a little separate baggie. Also, like, all the bags are open, and they're not designed to be closed. Um, but overall, all the background noise is much better than my old microphone was that picked up everything and its dog. Of course, then again, this probably is too, because... Since it's a USB microphone, I can't actually hear what I'm saying. I just have to go by what these waves are telling me. Um, which is kinda harder than listening to it. So I have no idea of what the quality of this will be until I stop and... Listen to it. Alright, that's my review of the Samson CO3U microphone. Now, I would just like to take a second to say a few things. Because no one said anything, this podcast is now Creative Commons Attribute Sharealike. This does not mean that all the old episodes are Creative Commons Attribute Sharealike. You can still use them for Creative Commons Attribute Sharealike. However, I mean, Creative Commons Attribute. However, the, uh thing is that this new episode I have some content that requires this license but with the exception of this content I really really don't care as long as I get credit so you I suppose could put under a different license I probably won't sue you depending on what you do with it and how I can see it however I doubt you'd do anything with it so I don't know why I'm bothering with this um, next in the news, apparently Microsoft will have to pay Europe a lot of money and no longer include Windows Media Player in their version of Windows. I don't know, I'm not quite sure why. Apparently some European law and argument just kept going and going. Anyway, why don't we skip the game review for today and go straight on to the audiobook. Hello, this audiobook is The Cosmic Computer by H. Beam Piper. H. Beam Piper. That is because no one really said anything and complained, so this is what it is. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about it. Con Maxwell returns from Terra to his poverty-stricken home planet of Poitetsma, the junkyard planet, with news of the possible location of Merlin, a military supercomputer rumored to have been abandoned there after the last war. The inhabitants hope to find Merlin, which they think will be their ticket to wealth and prosperity. But is Merlin real or just an old rumor? And if they find it, will it save them or tear them apart? This summary is by Mark Nelson, who also happened to be the recorder of this audiobook. It's the same guy who read our last audiobook. He's really, really good. And what's better yet, he's gotten some practice. This audiobook is better, if it's possible, than the Green Odyssey. It 
has about 11 sections, each with two chapters in length, varying from 30 minutes to an hour. Enjoy. is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. The Cosmic Computer by H. Beam Piper. Chapter 1 30 Minutes to Litchfield. Con Maxwell at the armor-glass front of the observation deck, watched the landscape rush out of the horizon and vanish beneath the ship, ten thousand feet down. He thought he knew how an hourglass must feel with the sand slowly draining out. It had been six months to Litchfield when the Mazar lifted out of La Plata spaceport, and he watched Terra dwindle away. It had been two months to Litchfield when he boarded the city of Asgard at the port of the same name on Odin. It had been two hours to Litchfield when the Countess Dorothy rose from the airship dock at Storacenda. He had had all that time, and now it was gone, and he was still unprepared for what he must face at home. Thirty minutes to Litchfield. The words echoed in his mind as though he had spoken them aloud, and then, realizing that he never addressed himself as Sir, he turned. It was the first mate. He had a clipboard in his hand, and he was wearing a Terran Federation Space Navy uniform of forty years, or about a dozen regulation changes, ago. Once Khan had taken that sort of thing for granted. Now it was obtruding upon him everywhere. Thirty minutes to Litchfield, sir,' the first officer repeated, and gave him the clipboard to check the luggage list. Valises, two. Trunks, two. Microbook case, one. The last item fanned a small flicker of anger, not at any person, not even at himself, but at the whole infernal situation. He nodded. That's everything. Not many passengers left aboard, are there? You're the only one, first class, sir. About forty farm laborers on the lower deck. He dismissed them as mere cargo. Litchfield's the end of the run. I know. I was born there. The mate looked again at the name on the list and grinned. Sure, you're Rodney Maxwell's son. Your father's been giving us a lot of freight lately. I guess I don't have to tell you about Litchfield. Maybe you do. I've been away for six years. Tell me, are they having labor trouble now? Labor trouble? The mate was surprised. You mean with the farm tramps? Ten of them for every job, if you call that trouble. Well, I noticed you have steel gratings over the gangway heads to the lower deck, and all your crewmen are armed. Not just pistols, either. Oh, that's on account of pirates. Pirates? Con echoed. Well, I guess you'd call them that. A gang'll come aboard, dressed like farm tramps. They'll have tommy guns and sawed-off shotguns in their bindles. When the ship's airborne and out of reach of help, they'll break out their guns and take her. Usually kill all the crew and passengers. They don't like to leave live witnesses, the mate said. You heard about the Harriet Barn, didn't you? She was transcontinental and overseas, the biggest contragravity ship on the planet. They didn't pirate her, did they? The mate nodded. Six months ago, Blackie Perala's gang... There was just a tag end of a radio call that ended in a shot. Time the air patrol got to her estimated position, it was too late. Nobody's ever seen ship, officers, crew, or passengers since. 
Well, great goo! Isn't the government doing anything about it? Sure. They offered a big reward for the pirates, dead or alive. And there hasn't been a single case of piracy inside the city limits of Storacenda, he added solemnly. The Calder Range had grown to a sharp blue line on the horizon ahead, and he could see the late afternoon sun on granite peaks. Below, the fields were bare and brown, and the woods were autumn-tinted. They had been green with new foliage when he had last seen them, and the wine-melon fields had been in pink blossom. Must have gotten the crop in early on this side of the mountains. Maybe they were still harvesting over in the Gordon Valley. Or maybe this gang below was going to the wine-pressing. Now that he thought of it, he'd seen a lot of cask staves going aboard at Storacenda. Yet there seemed to be less land under cultivation now than six years ago. He could see squares of bracken and low brush that had been melon fields recently, among the new forests that had grown up in the past forty years. The few stands of original timber towered above the second growth like hills. Those trees had been there when the planet had been colonized. That had been two hundred years ago, at the beginning of the seventh-century atomic era. The name Poitem told that, Suromanticist movement, when they were rediscovering James Branch Cabell. Old Genji Gartner, the scholarly and half-piratical space rover, whose ship had been the first to enter the Tri-System, had been devoted to the romantic writers of the pre-atomic era. He had named all the planets of the Alpha System from the books of Cabell, and those of Beta from Spencer's Fairy Queen, and those of Gamma from Rabelais. Of course, the camp village at his first landing site on this one had been called Storacenda. Thirty years later, Genji Gartner had died there, after seeing Storacenda grow to a metropolis and Poitem become a member republic in the Terran Federation. The other planets were uninhabitable except in airtight dome cities, but they were rich in minerals. Companies had been formed to exploit them. No food could be produced on any of them except by carniculture and hydroponic farming, and it had been cheaper to produce it naturally on Poitem. So Poitem had concentrated on agriculture and had prospered, at least for about a century. Other colonial planets were developing their own industries. The manufactured goods the garter tri-system produced could no longer find a profitable market. The mines and factories on Jurgen and Koshai, on Britomart and Kalidor, on Panurg and the moons of Pantagruel closed, and the factory workers went away. On Poitem, the offices emptied, the farms contracted, forests reclaimed fields, and the wild game came back. Coming toward the ship out of the east now was a vast desert of crumbling concrete landing fields and parade grounds, empty barracks and toppling sheds, airship docks, stripped gun emplacements and missile launching sites. These were more recent, and dated from Poitem's second hectic prosperity, when the Garter Tri-System had been the advance base for the Third Fleet Army Force during the System State's War. It had lasted twelve years. Millions of troops were stationed on or routed through Poitem. The mines and factories reopened for war production. The Federation spent trillions on trillions of sols, piled up mountains of supplies and equipment, left the face of the world cluttered with installations. Then, without warning, the System-States Alliance collapsed, the rebellion ended, and the scourge of peace fell on Poitem. The Federation armies departed. They took the clothes they stood in, their personal weapons, and a few souvenirs. Everything else was abandoned. Even the most expensive equipment had been worth less than the cost of removal. The people who had grown richest out of the war had followed, taking their riches with them. For the next forty years, those who remained had been living on leavings. On Terra, Khan had told his friends that his father was a prospector, leaving them to interpret that as one who searched for, say, uranium. 
Rodney Maxwell found quite a bit of uranium, but he got it by taking apart the warheads of missiles. Now he was looking down on the granite spines of the Calder Range. Ahead the misty Gordon Valley sloped and widened to the north. Twenty minutes to Litchfield now. He still didn't know what he was going to tell the people who would be waiting for him. No, he knew that. He just didn't know how. The ship swept on, ten miles a minute, tearing through thin puffs of cloud. Ten minutes. The big bend was glistening redly in the sunlit haze, but Litchfield was still hidden inside its curve. Six. Four. The Countess Dorothy was losing speed and altitude. Now he could see it, first a blur and then distinctly. The airline's building, so thick as to look squat for all its height. The yellow block of the distilleries under the plume of steam. High Garden Terrace, the mall. Moment by moment the stigmata of decay became more evident. Terraces empty or littered with rubbish, gardens untended and choked with wild growth, blank staring windows, walls splotched with lichens. At first he was horrified at what had happened to Litchfield in six years. Then he realized that the change had been in himself. He was seeing it with new eyes, as it really was. The ship came in five hundred feet above the mall, and he could see cracked pavements sprouting grass, statues askew on their pedestals, waterless fountains. At first he thought one of them was playing, but what he had taken for spray was dust blowing from the empty basin. There was a thing about dusty fountains, some poem he read at the university. The fountains are dusty in the graveyard of dreams. The hinges are rusty, they swing with tiny screams. Was Poitem a graveyard of dreams? No, junkyard of empire. The Terran Federation had impoverished a hundred planets, devastated a score, actually depopulated at least three to keep the System States Alliance from seceding. It hadn't been a victory, it had only been a lesser defeat. There was a crowd, almost a mob on the deck, nearly everybody in topside Litchfield. He spotted old Colonel Zareff, with his white hair and plum-brown skin, and Tom Brangwen, the town marshal, red-faced and hulking above everybody else, Kurt Fawzi, the mayor, well to the front. Then he saw his father and mother and sister Flora and waved to them. They waved back, and then everybody was waving. The gangway port opened, and the academy band struck up, enthusiastically, if inexpertly, as he descended to the dock. His father was wearing a black suit with a long coat, cut in the same pattern as the one he had worn six years ago. Blackout curtain cloth. It was fairly new, but the coat had begun to acquire a permanent wrinkle across the right hip, over the pistol butt. His mother's dress was new, and so was Flora's, made for the occasion. He couldn't be sure just which of the Federation armed forces had provided the material, but his father's shirt was Med Service Sterilon. Ashamed to be noticing things like that, he clasped his father's hand, kissed his mother, embraced his sister. There were a few, but very few, gray threads in his father's mustache, a few more squint wrinkles around the eyes. His mother's hair was all gray now, and she was heavier. She seemed shorter, but that would be because he'd grown a few inches in the last six years. For a moment he was surprised that Flora actually looked younger. Then he realized that to seventeen, twenty-three is practically middle age, but to twenty-three, twenty-nine is almost contemporary. He noticed the glint on her left hand and caught it to look at the ring. "'Hey, Zarathustra Sunstone! Nice!' he said. "'Where is he, sis?' He'd never met her fiancé. Wade Lucas hadn't come to Litchfield to practice medicine until the year after he'd gone to Terra. "'Oh, emergency,' Flora said. "'Obstetrical case. That won't wait on anything. In Tramp Town, of course. But he'll be at the party—oops, I shouldn't have said that. 
that's supposed to be a surprise. Don't worry, I'll be surprised, he promised. Then Kurt Fawzi was pushing forward, holding out his hand. Thinner and grayer, but just as effusive as ever. Welcome home, Con. Judge, shake hands with him and tell him how glad we all are to see him back. Now, Franz, put away the recorder. Save the interview for the Chronicle till later. Ollie, Professor Kelton, one pupil Litchfield Academy can be proud of. He shook hands with them, Judge Ledoux, Franz Veltrin, old Professor Dolph Kelton. They were all happy. How much, he wondered, because he was Con Maxwell, Rodney Maxwell's son, home from Terra, and how much because of what they hoped he'd tell them. Kurt Fawzi, edging him aside, was the first to speak of it. "'Con, what did you find out?' he whispered. "'Do you know where it is?' He stammered, then saw Tom Brangwen and Colonel Clem Zareff approaching the older man tottering on a silver-headed cane, and the younger keeping pace with him. Neither of them had been born on Poitem. Tom Brangwen had always been reticent about where he came from, but Hathor was a good guess. There had been political trouble on Hathor twenty years ago. The losers had had to get off-planet in a hurry to dodge firing squads. Clem Zareff never was reticent about his past. He came from Ashmodai, one of the system state's planets, and he had commanded a regiment, and finally a division that had been blasted down to less than regimental strength in the Alliance Army. He always wore a little rosette of system state's black and green on his coat. "'Hello, boy,' he croaked, extending a hand. "'Good to see you again.' "'It sure is, Con,' the town marshal agreed then lowered his voice. Find out anything definite? We didn't have much time, Con, Kurt Fawzi said, but we've arranged a little celebration for you. We'll start it with a dinner at Senta's. You couldn't have done anything I'd have liked better, Mr. Fawzi. I'd have to have a meal at Senta's before I'd really feel at home. Well, it'll be a couple of hours. Suppose we all go up to my office in the meantime give the ladies a chance to fix up for the party, and have a little drink and uh, talk together. "'You want to do that, Con?' his father asked. There was an odd undertone of anxiety or reluctance in his voice. "'Yes, of course, I'd like that.' His father turned to speak to his mother and Flora. Kurt Fawzi was speaking to his wife, interrupting himself to shout instructions to some laborers who were bringing up a contragravity skid. Khan turned to Colonel Zareff. "'Good melon crop this year?' he asked. The old rebel cursed. "'Gehenna of a big crop. We're up to our necks in melons. This time next year we'll be washing our feet in brandy.' "'Hold on to it and age it. You ought to see what they charge for a drink of Poitem brandy on Terra.' "'This isn't Terra, and we aren't selling it by the drink,' Colonel Zareff said. We're selling it at Storacenda Spaceport, for what the freighter captains pay us. You've been away too long, Con. You've forgotten what it's like to live in a poorhouse. The cargo was coming off now. Cask staves and more cask staves. Zareff swore bitterly at the sight, and then they started toward the wide doors of the shipping floor, inside the airline's building. Outgoing cargo was beginning to come out. Casks of brandy, of course, and a lot of boxes and crates, painted light blue and bearing the yellow trefoil of the Third Fleet Army Force and the eight-pointed red star of Ordnance. Cases of rifles, square boxes of ammunition, crated autocannon. Khan turned to his father. "'This our stuff?' he asked. "'Where did you dig it?' Rodney Maxwell laughed. "'You know the old Tenth Army headquarters, over back of Snagtooth in the Calders? Everybody knows that was cleared out years ago. Well, always take a second look at these things everybody knows. Ten to one, they're not so. It always bothered me that nobody found any underground attack shelters. 
I took a second look, and sure enough, I found them, right underneath, mined out of solid rock. Con, you'd be surprised at what I found there. Where are you going to sell that stuff? he asked, pointing at a passing skid. There's enough combat equipment around now to outfit a private army for every man, woman, and child in Poitem. Storrison to spaceport. The freighter captains buy it, and sell it on some of the planets that were colonized right before the war and haven't gotten industrialized yet. I'm clearing about two hundred sols a ton on it. The skid at which he had pointed was loaded with cases of M-504 submachine guns. Even used, one was worth fifty sols. Allowing for packing weight, his father was selling those tommy guns for less than a good café on Terra got for one drink of Poitem brandy. CHAPTER Two. He had been in Kurt Fawzi's office before, once or twice, with his father. He remembered it as a dim, quiet place of genteel conviviality and rambling conversation. None of the lights were bright, and the walls were almost invisible in the shadows. As they entered, Tom Brangwen went to the long table and took off his belt and holster, laying it down. One by one, the others unbuckled their weapons and added them to the pile. Clem Zareff's cane went on the table with his pistol. There was a sword inside it. That was something else he was seeing with new eyes. He hadn't started carrying a gun when he left for Terra, and he was wondering now why any of them bothered to. Why, there wouldn't be a shooting a year in Litchfield, if you didn't count the tramp-towners, and they stayed south of the docks and off the top level. Or perhaps that was just it. Litchfield was peaceful because everybody was prepared to keep it that way. It certainly wasn't because of anything the planetary government did to maintain order. Now Brangwen was setting out glasses, filling a pitcher from a keg in the corner of the room. The last time Khan had been here, they'd given him a glass of wine, and he'd felt very grown up because they didn't water it for him. "'Well, gentlemen,' Kurt Fawzi was saying, "'let's have a toast to our returned friend and new associate. Khan, we're all anxious to hear what you found out, but even if you didn't learn anything, we're still happy to have you back with us. Gentlemen, to our friend and neighbor. Welcome home, Khan.' "'Well, it's wonderful to be back, Mr. Fawzi,' he began. "'Here, none of this Mr. Foolishness. You're one of us now, Con. And drink up, everybody. We have plenty of brandy, if we don't have anything else.' "'You can say that again, Kurt.' That was one of the distillery people. He'd remember the name in a moment. "'When this new crop gets pressed and fermented—' I don't know where in Gehenna I'm going to vat mine till it ferments, Clem Zareff said. Or why, another planter added. Lorenzo, what are you going to be paying for wine? Lorenzo Minardis, that was the name. The distiller said he was worrying about what he'd be able to get for brandy. Oh, please, Fawzi interrupted, not today. Not when our boy's home and is going to tell us how we can solve all our problems. Yes, Con, that was Morgan Gatworth, the lawyer. You did find out where Merlin is, didn't you? That set them all off. He was still holding his drink. He downed it in one gulp, barely tasting it, and handed the glass to Tom Brangwen for a refill, and caught a frown on his father's face. One did not gulp drinks in Kurt Fawzi's office. Well, neither did one blast everybody's hopes with half a dozen words, and that was what he was trying to force himself to do. He wanted to blurt out the one quick sentence and get it over with, but the words wouldn't come out of his throat. He lowered the second drink by half. The brandy was beginning to warm him and dissolve the cold lump in his stomach. Have to go easy, though. He wasn't used to this kind of drinking, and he wanted to stay sober enough to talk sense until he told them what he had to. "'I hope,' he said, "'that you don't expect me to show you the cross on the map, 
where the computer is buried. All the eyes around him began to look troubled. Most of them had been expecting precisely that. His father was watching him anxiously. But it's still here on Poitem, isn't it? one of the melon planters asked. They didn't take it away with them. Most of you gentlemen, he said, contributed to sending me to school on Terra, to study cybernetics and computer theory. It wouldn't do us any good to find Merlin if none of us could operate it. Well, I've done that. I can use any known type of computer and train assistants. After I graduated, I was offered a junior instructorship in computer physics at the university. "'You didn't mention that, son,' his father said. "'The letter would have come on the same ship I did. Besides, I didn't think it was very important.' "'I think it is,' there was a catch in old Dolph Kelton's voice. "'One of my boys from the Academy offered a place on the faculty of the University of Montevideo on Terra. He finished his drink and held out his glass for more, something he almost never did. "'Con means,' Kurt Fawzi explained, "'that it had nothing to do with Merlin.' "'All right. Now tell them the truth.' "'I was also to find out anything I could about a secret giant computer used during the war by the Third Fleet Army Force, codenamed Merlin.' I went over all the records available to the public. I used your letter, Professor, and the head of our modern history department secured me access to non-public material, some of it still classified. For one thing, I have locations and maps and plans of every Federation installation built here between 842 and 854, the whole period of the war. He turned to his father. There are incredible things still undiscovered. Most of the important installations were built in duplicate, sometimes triplicate as a precaution against space attack. I know where all of them are. Space attack! Clem Zeref was indignant. There never was a time we could have attacked Poitem. Even if we'd had the ships, we were fighting a purely defensive war. Aggression was no part of our policy. He interrupted. Excuse me, Colonel. The point I was trying to make is that, with all I was able to learn, I could find nothing, not one single word, about any giant strategic planning computer called Merlin or any Merlin project. There, he'd gotten it out. Now go on and tell them about the old man in the dome house on Luna. The room was silent, except for the small insectile hum of the electric clock. Then somebody set a glass on the table, and it sounded like a hammer blow. Nothing, Con. Kurt Fawzi was incredulous. Judge Ledoux's hand shook as though palsied as he tried to relight his cigar. Dolph Kelton was looking at the drink in his hand as though he had no idea what it was. The others found their voices one by one. Of course it was the most closely guarded secret— but after forty years— Ha! Don't tell me about security, Colonel Zareff barked. You should have seen the lengths our staff went to. I remember once on Mephistopheles. But there was a computer codenamed Merlin, Judge Ledoux was insisting, to convince himself more than anybody else. Its memory bank contained all human knowledge. It was capable of scanning all its data instantaneously, and combining and forming associations, and reasoning with absolute accuracy, and extrapolating to produce new facts, and predicting future events, and—and and if you'd asked such a computer, is there a god, it would have simply answered, present. We'd have won the war, except for Merlin, Zareph was declaring. Con, from what you've learned of computers, generally— how big would Merlin have to be? old Professor Kelton asked. Well, the astrophysics computer at the university occupied a volume of a hundred thousand cubic feet. For all Merlin was supposed to do, I'd say something of the order of three million to five million. 
Well, it's a cinch they didn't haul that away with them, Lester Dawes, the banker, said. Oh, lots of places on Poitem where they could have hid a thing like that, Tom Brangwen said. You know, a planet's a mighty big place. It didn't have to be on Poitem, even, Morgan Gatworth pointed out. It could be anywhere in the Tri-System. You know where I'd have put it? Lorenzo Menardis asked. On one of the moons of Pentagruel. But that's in the Gamma System, three light years away, Kurt Fozzi objected. There isn't a hypership on this planet, and it would take half a lifetime to get there on normal space drive. Khan was lifting his glass to his lips. He set it down again and rose to his feet. Then, he said, we will build a hypership. On Koshai there are shipyards and hyperdrive engines and everything we will need. We only need one normal space interplanetary ship to get there, and we're in business. Well, I don't know we need one, Judge Ledoux said. That was only an idea of Lorenzo's. I think Merlin's right here on Potem. We don't know it is, Con replied, and we don't know we won't need a ship. Merlin may be on Koshai. That's where the components would be fabricated, and the armed forces weren't hauling anything any farther than they had to. Koshai's only two and a half minutes away by radio. That's practically in the next room. Look, here's how they could have done it. He went on talking about remote controls and radio transmission and positronic brains and neutrino circuits. They believed it all, even the little they understood. They would believe anything he told them about Merlin, except the truth. But this will take money, Lester Dawes said, and after that infernal deluge of unsecured paper currency thirty years ago. I have no doubt, Judge Ledoux began, that the planetary government at Storacenda would give assistance. I have some slight influence with President Vykoven. Huh-uh! That was one of Clem Zareff's fellow planters. We don't want Jake Vykoven or any of his first families of Storacenda oligarchy in this at all. That's the gang that bankrupted the government with doles and work relief, and everybody else with worthless printing press money after the war, and they've been squatting in a circle, deploring things ever since. Some of these days, Blackie Perales and his pirates will sack Storacenda for all they'd be able to do to stop him. We get a ship out to Korshai, and the next thing you know, we'll be the planetary government, Tom Brangwen said. Rodney Maxwell finished the brandy in his glass and set it on the table, then went to the pile of belts and holsters and began rummaging for his own. Kurt Fozzi looked up in surprise. Rod, you're not leaving, are you? he asked. Yes, it's only half an hour till time for dinner, and I think Con and I ought to have a little fresh air. Besides, you know we haven't seen each other for six years. He buckled on the heavy automatic and settled the belt over his hips. You didn't have a gun, did you, Con? he asked. Okay, let's go. End of chapters one and two. Well, just to keep this podcast short, and because I'm really, really busy and just desperate to get an episode out, we'll forgo the music and go straight on to the credits. Open Sci-Fi is made by Star Llamas. Lost, the opening song, is made by a... Tyrandian or Kieran. I'm not sure whether it is Creative Commons attribute share-like or just Creative Commons. It was in the Stepmania competition, Step Mix 1, which required it to be one of the two, but I've never been able to find out which. Techno is by some random guy from archive.org. It's Creative Commons attribute. The author is unknown. The song you're hearing now is The Entertainer by Scott Joplin. Retrieved from Utopia, it's in the public domain. The audiobook you hear is from LibriVox, www.librivox.org. It is in the public domain. 
This show is a Creative Commons Attribute Sharealike 3.0 license. Thanks for listening. Until next week. <laughs>